Welcome to Easter Friday, Good Friday. One candle left. If you've been tracking with us this week, we're looking today at the incredible and unlikely victory that we see. Easter Friday is a Friday like no other, and it's the pinnacle of the story of God and humanity. Uh, When I think of Easter Friday, I'm always reminded of my childhood, and uh, so much of Easter uh, brings about so many memories. In fact, Easter is the very weekend I came to faith in Jesus, uh, 2003, many, many years ago. But when I think of my childhood, I think of my relationship that I had with my sister, I don't know what your relationships with your different siblings were like, but, but each one of mine were different and in different ways. And when I think of my relationship with my sister, it was one that was unique and interesting. For, for whatever reason, it managed to bring out of me the very best and the very worst. The most bratty, the most malicious, the most vindictive version of myself. A person I'm ashamed of and yet a person I know lived in me and still from time to time, sadly, rears his ugly head. When I think of my relationship with my sister when I was a little kid, I knew how hard I wanted to be like her. And yet I also know how much I wanted to drag her into my world. And as a cheeky, bratty little seven or eight-year-old, how much I wanted to make her fight fire with fire. I would push her buttons and do everything I could to try to get her to fight back with me the way that I was fighting. Whether it was a snide comment or an unkind remark, whatever it may be, it was my way of saying, would you return my fists of hostility with more fists of hostility? And yet, time after time after time, all I got was a kiss of grace. Instead of getting what I wanted uh, to drag her into my world, I got a person who with patient, gentle, kind love continued to care. It was exactly what I didn't want, but it was everything I needed. This amazing Easter Friday, I hope that you will see that the story of the cross The message of Jesus and his death and crucifixion on a cross is exactly like that. Humanity's efforts to try to push God to the limits and God himself going to those limits, but not breaking, not giving in. And in that, providing an unlikely victory. If I were to give this talker a name, I would call it an unlikely victory in an unlikely way. It's the story of humanity shaking fists of hostility and receiving the story of God's grace. Receiving the story of God's grace. It was uh, here at at the cross that the powers of darkness, the powers of evil, sin and Satan and death did much like I did. They picked a fight with God, hoping to elicit an unrighteous response. That God too would pick up his fists of anger and fight fire with fire. And yet we're going to see as we go through the story that he simply doesn't budge. He doesn't take the bait. He doesn't go that way. He loves like no other could ever love. 
Join me as we journey through this amazing passage of Scripture, as we look at the book of Mark and we continue on to this most important passage, as we look at Jesus, who doesn't muster up military might to beat his enemies, but shows incredible grace. As we read this passage, I want to invite you into uh, basically looking at this in two ways, putting on two different lenses. Firstly, I want you to put on the lens of the victory of God, the victory of God. This is the lens that sees that in Jesus Christ on the cross, he is demonstrating a profound and powerful victory. Jesus on Good Friday is doing what no one else can do to defeat the powers and principalities of darkness and death and decay and sin and Satan and death. And as you listen, I want you to see how unlikely this victory is, how unexpected the manner of victory actually comes about. Evil tries to cause Jesus to fight fire with fire and he simply doesn't budge. A number of times you'll pick up in the passage that he is silent or that he doesn't uh, kick up a fuss. He tends to move with this amazing grace and fortitude towards the cross. Hey, read it with the lens of victory. Secondly, I want you to uh, read this passage as we go through it through the lens of substitution. Substitution. It's simply a term for God standing in our stead. Substitution is that Jesus is doing this for us. As you walk with him step by step, as you witness what is going on in his life and what people are doing to him, would you realize that he is substituting himself for you? It, it reminds me of a story of Sister Anne Rosa in Myanmar just a couple of weeks ago who basically got on her knees in front of the, uh, the military uh, occupying forces who taken over Myanmar to this day and who essentially she stands before them and she says, take my life, not theirs. And she gets on her knees and the military get on their knees and there is an incredible exchange. She says she did it for the children. She did it for the hospitals. She stood in their stead. Profoundly, she said, you'll have to come through me. Isn't that a powerful image? He went where we should have gone. He gets what we certainly deserve. We pick up the story in this passage where Pilate has essentially handed Jesus over to the authorities to leave him to be crucified. He's done his best, uh, uh, Pilate, to essentially offer Barabbas as a substitute. He said, wouldn't you rather have Barabbas, this uh, insurrectionist who's done all kinds of bad things in, in Israel? And everybody bays and shouts, crucify him to Jesus. They didn't want Barabbas. They wanted Jesus crucified. It's a bizarre story. It's a peculiar one that a whole group of people would find it so easy to send this innocent one to the cross. And yet from this side of the story, we get to understand that this is not just them doing it. This is God in his love going where he knows he needs to go. Hey, and in a world of self-belief, in a world of self-confidence, Easter Friday calls us towards humility. It calls us towards sober self-reflection. The need for God to have to die for us. I hope today we can soberly reflect on this amazing thing. So look through the lens of victory and look through the lens of substitution. 
Let's read from uh, verse 16. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him and twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. Roman soldiers were skilled at mocking, of uh, diminishing the image of Jesus, of, of trying their best to shame him and to scorn him and to make him feel like nothing. The whole Roman torture uh, philosophy was to make a person feel less than human. And most theologians would agree that when Mark is writing this passage, he is not writing primarily to expose the reader to the gruesome physical realities of Jesus' death, although he doesn't shy away from that. He's primarily here trying to expose the reader to the shame of the situation, to the deep humiliation that people were trying to put upon Jesus. Did you pick up how they were treating him? Did you pick up how they mocked him? How they chose to uh, essentially bow down in a mocking way and say, hail king of the Jews in front of people whom Jesus had walked with and known and conversed with. They are now radically humiliating him. Nobody likes this. This is one of your greatest fears. My greatest fears is that we would be publicly shamed and put on display for everyone to see, essentially in a naked kind of way. Scripture makes super clear that this same Jesus is being mocked as a phony, a pretender, a kind of play-play king who's pretending to be a king in the little uh, kind of market square is in fact the very one who in the words were spoken into creation that the birds began their tweets, that galaxies multiplied at his very word. The very ruler and creator of all is now at the very epicenter of one of the most humiliating experiences you can imagine. And he is being mocked and scorned. This is almost incomprehensible. My prayer for you and I, as we listen to this, as we read this text, is that the eyes of our hearts, with the help of the Holy Spirit, would be able to see and understand the gravity of what is happening to the King of Kings and to the Lord of Lords, the very Creator. They squeeze a crown of thorns onto his head in mockery because they say, Hail, King of the Jews. He is no king to them. And yet amazingly, in deep love, the deeper those thorns go into his skull, the more true it becomes that he truly is heaven and earth's true king, that he truly is the one and the only one who can love to death, who can love with such an intense and ferocious love. <laughs> I don't know if you look at the scene and you find yourself going, stand up. You're hoping that the Lion of Judah will suddenly get up and roar and at that roar, the Roman soldiers will be thrown back against the walls and will find themselves bowing down and saying, we're sorry we mocked you. We will never do that again, tail between their legs, but you just don't get it. It's not the season. It's not the time for that. 
Jesus' time has arrived to show how deep his love truly, truly is. He's displaying a victory that would far outweigh any roar, anything that would push a few uh, minuscule Roman soldiers back. He is showing how deep this love goes. Heaven and earth true king is being crowned in a great moment of mockery to the world and yet humility and powerful love from the king. He's starting a revolution. He's starting a revolution of love that turns the world upside down. He's not sending off soldiers to the front line, but he himself is going there and he's fighting one of the greatest battles of the human heart as he embraces shame, ridicule, and genuine humility to reveal love. Let's keep reading. Verse 21, it says, A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him uh, wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and teachers of the law mocked him amongst themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Notice again the shame of this awful ordeal, the sheer unworthiness of this whole scenario that the king of heaven is in this scenario being nailed to a rugged Roman cross. Easter Friday is our day to submerge ourselves in this very fact. Here I see something very close to home for me and and I believe in our society. I don't know if you picked up those very crucial six words that were said. They, they were said just after he says, they offered wine mixed with myrrh to Jesus. Jesus' ministry began with temptation. He gets taken out and led by the Holy Spirit into the desert and there he is tempted with everything of the finest that any human heart or body could ever want from great riches to incredibly deep affirmation, all the bitcoins in the world and all the love he could ever imagine are offered him on a silver platter and yet he knows that he's made for more, that his story of redemption goes far wider than just what he can get because he has authority. And he lays aside many of his rights and many of these temptations which flow his way. But the temptation doesn't stop there. I don't know if you know this, but, but myrrh mixed with wine would have been an offer of some sort of anesthetic to Jesus. It would have been some little escape from the pain that he was going through. Some way to just get out, just escape from what he was facing to potentially just lose consciousness a little quicker. A quick morphine shot to escape from the physical and emotional pain of what he's going through, to slip into unconsciousness just that much quicker. And listen to these six words. But he did not take it. Those six words have shaken me this Easter. 
and I hope they shake you. But he did not take it. It's in Jesus' amazing love that he has offered even to the bitter end a temptation to just find some sort of escape. I wonder what other temptations he might have faced if he was a Western person moving towards the cross. Maybe to just hurry this thing on, to just speed it up. After all, he knows he's got to die for the sins of the world, so why not just get this thing done? Like a good CEO, what's the bottom line? How can I get there quickly? What can I do to fix the problem? But he doesn't hurry it. I hope we too don't hurry our way through Easter. Neither does he get distracted. From the beginning, and, and even a month earlier, the scriptures say in Luke chapter 9, at the t- as the time approached for him to be taken to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He wasn't distracted. He wasn't hurried. He wasn't like us who managed to find all kinds of escapes and ways to not face what's really happening. He knew what his primary objective was to do, which was to bring about the healing of humanity, to bring humans back to God that we might know him, to defeat the powers of sin and Satan and death, to stand in our stead. I wonder if he would have been tempted in that moment to simply get off the cross, to get off the cross. He had the power. He had the means. He could call on all the help he needed. Could he have? Might he have? One thing we know is that he didn't. He chose to stay. He didn't hurry it. He wasn't distracted and he never got off. And it's in that, that we have our substitute, that we have our victory. (laughs) He was offered wine. He was the one who had all power. He could do so much. He could turn water into wine. He could, uh, he could provide a feast for people where there was no food anywhere. We've looked in the book of Mark and seen these amazing stories. And yet in this moment, with all the power he possesses, he chooses not to provide power to himself, but to provide himself to the world, to become the very feast that we would feed off of. That's why he gives us the Lord's Supper and we take it with such reverence because we feed off of his broken body and his shed blood, which is the defeat over darkness and death and sin and Satan. He never got off the cross. He stayed. That's why a younger brother has his heart melted to the point of learning to love again just like I did. That's why a nun in Myanmar finds herself able to stand in between uh, strong soldiers and vulnerable people and say, you'll have to go through me. That's why teachers give up their lives for other people's kids so that they can find flourishing. That's why people put themselves out there because they have been moved by the mercy and the love of God and their hearts have been conquered by love. Has your heart been conquered by love? Verse 33, at noon darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me. When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar and put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. 
The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. The very first declaration of faith in the crucified Messiah was a Roman soldier who just moments ago was mocking him is now in a, a man of amazement. Isn't this beautiful? Notice the span of Jesus' victory as we look at him on the cross. He's defeated the powers of sin and Satan and death, government and religions that are corrupted. He's defeated temptation as he pushes away from hurry, distraction, and every other offering that's come his way. He's defeated rejection as his own disciples and, and others push back and say, we don't know him. He chooses to love nonetheless. Even nature itself is under his rule. The sky went dark, says this passage. And even this cosmic moment is met with a cosmic king who rules over it. Amazingly, he also defeats isolation. Notice how it says, and the temple curtain was torn in two. Every piece of spiritual isolation that you or I could ever feel was broken in that moment. It was the beautiful picture that was given to the people of Israel that the curtain was the separator and only one priest could go in once a year behind that curtain and he needed to be cleansed of every impurity. And still then it was highly risky. And yet in Jesus' beautiful defeat on the cross and his powerful substitution in our stead, the temple curtain is torn into a Roman centurion who's been mocking him a moment ago says, surely this was the son of God. He provides brand new access to the living God, to the love of God that we are provided with a whole new identity. This is an identity that is received, not achieved because he has done it all. I hope today that as we look at the cross, we see that he has defeated everything that stood between God and a love relationship with humanity. He has won the victory on our behalf and friends, we're invited into this relationship with him. On what basis? Simply on the basis that Jesus won, that Jesus has been victorious. Let me land by sharing this. My kids whom I love madly, from time to time, I tell them I love them, hopefully often enough. And sometimes they ask me, but dad, why? Why do you love us? And I answer by saying simply this, because you're mine. Because you're mine. God gave you to me. On the cross is the very moment that Jesus ransomed himself for you and for me. So that we too could be his. So that everything that stands between us and being God's is removed, is beaten, is broken, is pushed back. I pray today for us, and I will pray in a moment, but I pray for you that this Easter, you wouldn't find the temptations to hurry, to get distracted, or to even get away from the cross. The temptation on an Easter Friday is to, to, in a sense, get to the meal, to get to the next thing, whatever you've got planned. I pray that this Easter Friday, you wouldn't miss out. That maybe it's to celebrate and to see the victory he's won. Maybe it's to soberly reflect on the fact that he did it for us. That there was enough brokenness in you and I that he was glad to die for us. 
Maybe it's to realize that we're tempted to hurry ourselves. Maybe it's for us to understand that in our own moments of death, we're tempted to want Sunday to come because you and I both know that Sunday is coming, that resurrection is coming. But if we don't like Jesus, live well and follow Jesus through the cross, we may miss out on our resurrection moments. I pray today that we would savor and that we would store up every opportunity we get to savor his victory on the cross. And if you're going through a kind of death in your own life, that you wouldn't get distracted or hurry or rush your way through it, but that you'd walk through it with Jesus knowing that he wants to walk through it with you and that you would know that his victory is yours and he substituted himself for you. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your amazing victory, an unlikely victory that we could never have dreamt up or imagined, and yet you won it on our behalf. It's so much more than a sister who outloves a, a hostile brother. It's a God who created the world and you outlove hostile creatures like us. And you win our hearts by giving yourself in great humility to each of us. You beat and surprise the powers of death and darkness, disarming them with such profound love. And I pray that you would do the same for us today. As we see your death, which was needed, necessary, crucial that we might have life, we choose today to simply live in this moment, present to your powerful and most important death. In Jesus' name, amen.